0: The book of Judges, and we're just going to read the first um, three verses here. So why don't we stand for the reading of God's word. We've been going through this book verse by verse, and we're going to continue to do that today. Plan on covering all of chapter 14 here today. Judges chapter 14, verses 1 through 3 reads, Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines, So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. The title of my sermon, may God bless the reading of his word, The title of my sermon this morning is The Need to Honor God and Our Parents. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we give thanks and praise to you that you have preserved your scriptures down through the years so that we can know your ways and your thoughts. And we ask and pray, O Lord, that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word, that you would use what you've given me to declare For good in the hearts and minds of the hearers. Lord, help me to set it forth. Lord, be glorified here through the preaching of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. could be seated. When we look at the life of Samson, we are looking at the latter era, wherein the Israelite confederacy still existed the people would soon call for a king. Rebellion to the Lord always increases the power of the state. Rebellion against the Lord always increases the power of the state. Atheistic societies often lead to statist societies. And this is what I've learned from history, from both history and life experience I've learned that when central government becomes abusive, evil, and tyrannical, the people look to more decentralized government to give state and local governments more power. And when decentralized governments become abusive, evil, and tyrannical, like the situation here in Israel at this time, people look to a more centralized form of government to give it more power. So the Israelites would soon want a king. As this form of decentralized government in Israel continued its decline, and as the rebellion against the Lord continued to have its awful consequences with each succeeding generation, the people the Lord had to work with to deliver his people declined in character. And I already preached about this in an earlier sermon, chapter 11. I preached about, look who the Lord has to work with. Look at scripture, look at history, look at our day, look at yourself. And look who the Lord has to work with. Mere men. Sinful, fallible men. And at times he really has to reach down into the bottom of the barrel. And sometimes he can't find anyone. When we read the scriptures, we see that. It can be so exasperating, one can wonder how the Lord can accomplish anything in the earth at times. And in the life of Samson, we see a man who clearly does not have a biblical view of life, nor is governed by the Lord's word. Yet we see a man who also, at the end of his life, acts in a very noble way, seeming to understand his love for the Lord and his purpose for his life. It's a great ending. After much tragedy, great ending. He does right by the Lord. But prior to To his end, we see little of a man submitted to God in his ways. We see a man who wants to do things his way. And here we see it in our passage right at the beginning. Samson wants a Philistine woman. He seems to have no care for the word of God or honor for his parents. You recall the Lord had made clear in his law in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that the Israelites were not supposed to marry those in the surrounding pagan nations because it would cause them to follow their false gods, Deuteronomy 7. And this pertains to the book of Judges and what all has happened there in their decline. Look back at Judges chapter 3, and let's just read verses 5 through 7. Judges chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. It says, Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, Things are getting pretty bad in Wisconsin. We might be able to add the Wisconsinites. That's how bad things are getting here. It says, and they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. So this is an important matter. This thing of Samson wanting a pagan woman. This Philistine woman, when God's word is clear, that isn't where he should be fishing. And in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, pardon me, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, the scripture reads, quote, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Now, many modern-day Christians say there is not a New Testament verse to forbid marriage to an unbeliever. And they say this verse does not either because marriage is not explicitly mentioned here. And I want you to know that's utter nonsense. It's hermeneutical horse doo-doo. What is in purview here is a simple principle. We are not to unequally yoke ourselves to unbelievers in our relationships and dealings. Notice he doesn't lay it all out, what exactly that means. Use your brain, figure it out, size up your situations, your relationships. Know when you've crossed the line, right? What is in purview here is a simple principle. We are not to unequally yoke ourselves to unbelievers in our relationships and dealings. And what relationship is more important and intimate than the marriage relationship? None. So surely it applies to the marriage relationship. You are making a grave mistake when you marry an unbeliever. It could be and will be detrimental to your walk with the Lord, It will at least be a hindrance, and it will have bad consequences for your children. I've seen it time and time again throughout my life. So here we are in verse 1 of chapter 14, and it says, Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Timnah was about four miles southwest of where Samson lived, so the neighboring town, there's a gal he sees. He likes, remember, the Philistines are ruling them at this time ruling the israelites at this time and he sees this woman a pagan woman and he wants her look at verses two and three so he samson went up and told his father and mother saying i have seen a woman in timnah of the daughters of the philistines now therefore get her for me as a wife Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. So not only did Samson not care about the law of God regarding this matter of where he was fishing for a woman, he did not honor his parents. He wants this pagan woman. And here we see something I have seen throughout life. When someone wants to marry someone, when two people want to get married, it's nearly impossible to deter them. It's nearly impossible to deter two people who've decided they want to get married. Very difficult. Not that it can't be done, but it's very difficult to be done, to be seen. And here we see it with Samson. He doesn't care what his parents have to say. Get her for me, for she pleases me well. In verse 4 it says, But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Remember, look who God has to work with, right? Understand when it says here in verse 4, He was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, that he there is the Lord himself. It's not referring to Samson, it's referring to the Lord. In other words, the Lord would use Samson's weakness and lust for his purposes. Understand the Lord did not make Samson disobedient. Rather, we see the aspect here of God's sovereignty, wherein he uses the willful decision of a person For his purposes. As it says, even in Romans, uh, pardon me, Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. He uses them for his purposes. Their rebellion, he uses for his sovereign purposes. So Samson and his reluctant parents go down to Timnah Look at uh, verse 5, the first part. It says, So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Notice the vineyards are mentioned. Remember from our last sermon, Samson is a Nazarite by birth. He's to have nothing to do with grapes, with wine, with raisins, anything dealing with the vine isn't supposed to have, he's, he's not to have anything to do with that. That's part of being a Nazarite. This seems to be mentioned as a warning to Samson to remain pure, even in the midst of doing wrong, going after this Philistine gal. Or is it mentioned because he was tempted by the grapes, hanging out by the vineyard, noticing How wonderful they look. Thinking about imbibing upon them, perhaps. And then look what happens in the midst of that situation. It continues in verse 5 and says, Now to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Perhaps he felt a little, well, it happened over by the vineyard. <laughs> you know, like, he's hanging out where he shouldn't, by the vineyard, right? This matter with the lion once again shows Samson's disobedience to the Lord, as we will see as the narrative continues here in chapter 14. It again demonstrates Samson's disobedience to the Lord. But this lion comes roaring against Samson while he is near the vineyards. Again, this lion attacking him seems to be a warning for Samson not to betray his Nazarite calling. He was at the vineyard. He seems to have been lingering there. Clearly, he was not with his parents, so he was alone. Able to imbibe upon sin, and then this lion comes upon him. Seems like a clear warning to be true to his calling. Amen? And we need to be true to our calling as Christian men and women. Amen? Amen. Be pure in heart, mind, action. Matthew Henry says of this passage, quote, by enabling him to kill a lion, God let Samson know what he could do in the strength of the Spirit of the Lord that he might never be afraid to look the greatest difficulties in the face. He was alone in the vineyards, whither he had rambled. Matthew Henry says, and then Henry says this, Young people, consider not how they expose themselves to the roaring lion that seeks to devour when they wander from their prudent, pious parents, unquote. Honor your parents. Amen. Be true to Christ. Amen. Listen to your parents. The only time you don't listen to your parents, is your parents are wicked until you do something wicked. <laughs> you don't listen to that. Otherwise, you honor them. You do right by him, you do right by them. Amen? Honor them. Boys and girls, young people, honor your parents. The honor goes all the way to their death, even when you're old yourself, and caring for your parents. Honor your parents. And notice this is the first time the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson so that he has this mighty strength to rip a lion apart. The Hebrew verb for came mightily, there in verse 6, means to rush upon. And it also carries the connotation of fire. Ever have the fire of the Lord in your heart, in your bosom? It's an awesome thing to experience. You just can't keep it in. You have to declare something to people. It burns within you to do it. Some message, some act. You must do it. And the Spirit of the Lord, it came upon him, and he kills this lion with his bare hands. The Spirit burns our hearts. It rushes on us. Now remember, the Spirit of the Lord did not reside in men at all times in the Old Testament, like he does in those who name the name of Christ in our day in the New Testament. The Spirit came upon men back then for a short time for specific tasks. For Samson, it was for superhuman strength. This first time the Spirit came upon him was part of his being warned to live right before the Lord. And if he did so, he would see how the Lord can use him. And if we will do right before the Lord, we will see how the Lord can use us. Amen? So it goes on in verse 7, and it says, Then he went down over to Timnah and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. So Samson makes it with his parents to the woman's family, and he talks with her. And his little talk seals the deal for him. Oh, she looked great. He loves what he heard. Seals the deal for him. Now here in these first seven verses, we see many interesting things about the process of a man finding a wife that I would like to make note of. Because it's a curious process, and I've seen it evolve in numerous ways, and yet there's so many common themes. When you're my age at age 60, you know there's like, a film is going to go one of five ways. It's not even worth watching a movie anymore. Human nature is so pathetically predictable. <laughs> so, it's like, so anyway, here's the first thing I want you to notice. Look at verse 1. It says, Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah. Notice he saw a woman. This is always the initial part. A man sees a woman, and he finds her attractive. Some people think, oh, that's terrible. You shouldn't find her. Oh, no, that can't be of God. No, it's how God made it to be. A man sees a woman, he finds her attractive. He's attracted to the woman by her physical beauty. And it is true, men are attracted by different things. One man is deeply attracted to one thing. Another man is totally indifferent to what that guy is attracted to. And can wonder at times, what was he even thinking? As a man, you can see a woman, and she can literally take your breath away. I've had that experience about five times in my life. Thankfully, I married one of them. (laughs) I remember I once thought the Lord might want me to marry a woman who I thought was ugly. I could see her love for the Lord... That's attractive to any godly Christian man. But I did not find her attractive at all. And I thought to myself, is the Lord testing me? Because a thought entered my mind. What if God wanted you to marry her? And I struggled that for a couple of weeks. It was like, I don't know if I could or not. The whole thing of seeing a woman is the initial part. You see a woman, you're attracted to her. So the first thing is seeing, a man's attracted to a woman's appearance. Physical attraction is God-given to get us men looking. (laughs) To get us looking. Today, many young men want only a digital relationship with women through porn. It is a great evil which retards the God-given process of a man finding a wife and conducting his sexuality as God intended within the confines of marriage. Now notice once a man has seen a woman he is attracted to, verse 1, he must talk with her, verse 7, right, where we're at now. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. Many a man who has seen a woman he found attractive, once he talks with her, that attraction diminishes. Once you see and you like, however, you must talk. You must talk. The attraction and talk has to be controlled and governed, and Samson lacked this. He should have listened to God's word, he should have listened to his parents, but he was (laughs) Twitter-pated. The talk just infatuated him with her further, dense as he was. There's a reason we hunt deer during the rut. (laughs) Because they're preoccupied. They're not thinking clearly in their little deer brain minds. <laughs> I remember the first deer I ever got. There was four does over this way. I'm sitting in a little ground blind, my little stick with a string on it, just a regular bow, recurve, not a compound. And I see this buck over here. Oh, man, he's, he, and he wants those does. And I just sat still as a mouse. And all of a sudden, he couldn't take it anymore. I didn't move. I knew he wanted me to move. He knew knew something wasn't quite right. He goes sailing across there. I come up, wham, six-point buck. All because he wanted those does. There's a reason we hunt during the rut, right? Samson wasn't thinking right. He's controlled by his lust, and we'll see in chapter 16 that his lust is his undoing because he never got control of it as a young man. It was his undoing as a man. Men, once you've seen a woman you find attractive, you must talk with her. Now, some guys are like, uh, talk with her? Some men are just horrified to talk to a woman. And if you're young, I remember I was horrified. It's like, uh, whoa, what do I say? So, first off, don't be a stalker, okay? There's nothing more disgusting than a guy who's a stalker and can't understand there's no mutual attraction. That's very befuddling to me. But yet I've seen it time and again. But if the attraction is mutual, you must learn if she has interest in the things you have an interest in, which, if you are serious about the Lord, are the things of Him. Does she love the Lord? Does she speak of Him and the things of Him? Does she want to do ministry? Does she do ministry? Does she want to have children as the Lord provides them? A million questions to ask and get to know, right? A million questions. If the talk reveals she is not interested or truly serious about the Lord and living in accordance with his ways, it's over. Go no further. End it. Stop. Do not allow an emotional connection to develop, which leads to a physical connection developing. Don't do it. Listen, once you start playing patty fingers, you complicate the situation. Keep things pure. Once you find the right one, the right woman. I met Clara, I knew two weeks into it, I was going to marry that woman. I told her one month into it that I love her. She told me, well, I can't say the same of you. Women have different thinking than men do. Five months into it, I love you. Right? Long engagements provide opportunity for a fall for sin. So long engagements are stupid. Once you find the right one, set your course, get married. Talking is massively important to determine the right one. And the parents, listen to me now. You all play a role in all this. Parents play a role in all this in their son or daughter's finding a spouse. These people of old back then understood this. Look at verse 2. It says, So Samson went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Why does he say that? Because the parents were involved in the process. They would talk to each other and determine whether there would be a marriage and arrange it and all that kind of stuff. We do things a little differently now here in America. Yet, nevertheless, parents should be involved in the process of their sons and daughters finding a spouse. Remember I said last sermon that I really like Samson's dad, Manoah? Remember I said that? But that he, like all parents, was not perfect. And we would see that as the narrative progressed? Well, here it is. This is where we see Manoah was not perfect. Verse 3 says, Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brother nor among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. So at first, Manoah stands against his son, going after this Philistine woman. But as we see in verse 5, so Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother. Manoah gave in. Manoah gave in. He did not stand firm, though it may have seemed loving at the time, and though Samson may have just disobeyed his dad anyway, Manoah should have not done his son's bidding. Manoah not standing firm with his duty in the sight of God, And I always explain that to my kids when we're at a cross on something. I always explain to them, one day you'll govern your home. Your duty is to him first. You'll answer to him. You have to do right by him as you see it. And that's what I'm doing right now as your father. I have a duty to govern this home as I see he wants me to. Manoah not standing firm with his duty in the sight of God was to the hurt of his son both then and later in his life. He could have helped teach his son to govern his life properly in keeping with the ways of the Lord regarding the situation with the Philistine woman, but Manoah failed. This matter of the parents being involved in the choosing of a spouse is of great importance. There are two ditches on the either side of any country road, at least any country road Matt Juel has ever seen. When it comes to this road, the two ditches are on one side, where the parent is indifferent to whom their child selects, and on the other side, where the parent is a busybody and tries to micromanage who their child selects. Those are the two ditches here. So first, all parents should raise their children to think properly, to think biblically regarding all areas of life, including the area of marriage and family. You have a bunch of years to do that. (laughs) Don't squander them. Start there. Second, teach your children about courtship. Do not throw them into the American dating game. The American dating game is fiercely unbiblical and sets your child up for temptation and failure. Courtship provides oversight. Third, do not run into either of the two ditches, the ditches of indifference or a busybody micromanager. Some men take their duty in regard to the process of their children finding a spouse to an extreme. I've seen it. For example, some men set up a situation where it's like the young man is courting the father rather than the daughter. This is why some women never get married or don't until they're in their 30s. Their father has all these dumb demands. I remember my father-in-law when I sat down to ask my wife's hand in marriage. I sat down and was nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof. And I said to him, I would like to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage. And I'll never forget what he said. He's from Hungary, escaped the communists there, so he's got an accent. I'm not good at accents, but I'll try a little bit. And um, he said to me, he said, I only have one requirement for any man who marry any of my daughters and that is that he loves the Lord his God with all his heart mind soul and strength and it was at that point I realized what a wise man my father-in-law was when he said I only have one requirement I thought here we go I'm doomed Ten thousand dollars in the bank. I think I have sixteen. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Got to have a house. I live with my mom. <laughs> you know? like, this is going to be long and hard. Before is this guy going to be like Laban? <laughs> you know, and <laughs> fourteen years before I get Rachel. You know, he was wise. He was wise. And I say the same thing to all my son-in-laws when they ask for my daughter's hands in marriage. I tell them the same thing. That's my one requirement. Understand we are all mere people. We all suck in some way. None of us were mature enough when we got married. I always laugh when people... I don't think they're mature enough to get married. And there's a couple of times I've had to agree with that (laughs) because they're really awful. But generally speaking... Getting married and having children is actually what matures us, what actually teaches us to grow up, to take on responsibility, and understand what true womanhood and true manhood is. But some fathers have all these dumb demands for their daughters and for the young man. I feel bad for women in that situation. They want to honor their father, and their father's being dumb. But I feel even worse for daughters whose fathers are disengaged and don't do their duty regarding these matters. So brethren, don't end up in either of those ditches. Understand your duty in the sight of Christ, the influence you have regarding your children in this important matter of who they marry. Claire and I know each of our children, and all are different. To begin with, we actually have a relationship with our children. We live in a culture which wants you to have none. Send them off to the government school, send them off to the nursery, six weeks after your wife's done, having them, send them off to the brothel called the university when they get older, on and on. All this separation between the children and the parents. We have a relationship with our children. We homeschool because we wanted to have a relationship with them, because we didn't want to send them off to these devils from hell who want to teach them filth. We pour into their lives and are real with them We actually talk with them and live real in front of them. We're not a family that puts on airs. You get what you see. Some people can't handle that. They want a pretend pastor who's not really human. He's super, (laughs) you know. Never will live that way, never have. We've had people who leave because that's what they want. Hope it works out for you. We're real people. So our children actually appreciate our insight, and when it comes to finding a spouse, our insight and our oversight. We tell them what to look for in a man or a woman. We try to model it by who we are and in our relationship with one another, what makes for a good man and a good woman. Let them see it from you in your marriage. Understand that in your marriage. The most important part of oversight is not providing opportunity for failure. I've known many good men, many a good Christian man, who thought he was all that, spent too much time alone with his girlfriend or fiance, and they fell in sin. Happens a lot. If your kid says to you, "You don't trust me," all you have to tell him is, "No." I just don't trust human nature. I'm a human, and I've lived a long time. I don't trust human nature. I said, it's not that you're a whore, or he's a whoremonger, or vice versa. Not at all. I said, the thing is, when two people actually love each other, if they have opportunity to be alone for protracted periods of time, it could lead to fornication. It could lead to sexual sin, to failure. That's what I don't trust. So we set things up and we're not barbarians about it. You know what I mean? We believe in the thing of you, know, um, you know, courtship and chaperoning. So I, I tell young men, you shouldn't be alone with a woman anyway. You live in America. Have you heard of the Me Too movement? <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> so not only should you not be alone with a woman for biblical appearances sake, man, your life could become a living hell on one mere allegation. Use your brain. So that's important to understand. And I totally just lost my train of thought of what I was going to say next. (laughs) That's why more and more I write everything down as I get older. So it's important that you have a chaperone. Someone is with you or you're near someone. There's so many ways to communicate with one another without being alone together, physically um, alone together for long, protracted periods of time. Every culture does it differently. They used to have this thing called in in houses they made called a parlor. A young man would be interested in a woman. The dad um, would send them off into the parlor, and he would set a candle. It was called a courtship candle. And it had a screw on it, so the length of the candle could be adjusted. If he thought the young man was a dope and really had no interest in this guy, having an interest in his daughter, very little of the candle <laughs> was made available to burn. If he really thought this, is, this, this would be good for my daughter, he would extend the candle. <laughs> so that It burned longer. They had longer time to talk to each other. They're right there in the room, blah, blah, blah. Every culture does it differently. So some of you have odd looks on your faces. I don't know what all you're thinking about. My life, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, anyways, those are all things to contemplate, think about, discuss. That is the biggest thing I'm a you, John, is you don't provide yourself opportunity to fall. You make sure you keep things right until your wedding night. So those are just a few thoughts. Now let's continue with our narrative. Verses 8 and 9. After some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. This is Samson. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. He took some of it in his hands and went along eating. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they also ate. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. Samson had already gone off course by not listening to God's word regarding not marrying a foreign, unbelieving woman, and he had already dishonored his parents regarding that. And here we see his wrong behavior getting worse. No Israelite was to eat unclean food. A lion was unclean, and any food that came from a dead lion was certainly unclean. In 13, verse 7, our last chapter, you may recall the angel made clear to Samson's mother no unclean food was to be eaten. And here is Samson doing so, and notice he did not tell his parents where the honey came from because they wouldn't have eaten it. He did not properly honor his mother and father. First the Philistine woman, now this. And I've seen men in my life who clearly have been called of God or given a specific or special task by God who are like Samson. They diminish their effectiveness for the Lord by messing with women or drink or food or ill behavior of some sort, some vice. And they retard the usefulness of God their life in his hands. They shorten it to what it could have been. They lessen it to what it should have been. Holiness matters, brothers and sisters. Walk true and close to him. Amen? Now the rest of this chapter, we see Samson off to a terrible start with his foreign, unbelieving, pagan wife. Off to a terrible start. Verse 10 says, So his father went down to the woman, and Samson gave a feast there, for young men used to do so. And it happened when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with him. Usually you provided this. They obviously were there with them and amongst their people. They provide 30 companions for him. Then Samson said to them, Let me pose a riddle to you if you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, because they would celebrate the wedding for seven days, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. Now, this was a big deal. Remember the dude with the 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys? Okay, every culture has its own glam standards, you know, a little prestige, you know, what makes you something, what do you drive, what do you wear, all that kind of stuff. These 30, this is a big deal. All these guys getting a set of clothes from him. He says, but if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And they said to him, pose your riddle, that we may hear it. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. He was talking about that lion. His wrongdoing <laughs> was going to be his undoing here. Now, for three days, they could not explain the riddle. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us, or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Now, that might motivate you. I know how it would motivate me, it wouldn't lead to doing what they wanted. <laughs> It wouldn't have, no. But for this gal, uh, yeah, I don't want my father's house burnt down. And understand, these were evil men, and they were serious. In fact, in our next chapter, we'll see that both her and her father were burned to death. So it's a real threat. Have you invited us, they say, in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? Then Samson's wife wept on him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. I always tell men, you ever get around a manipulative woman, run for the hills. Run for the hills. That whiny, hoo, 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 hoo. you know? Every woman cries from time to time. That's fine. But there's a difference I'm talking about here. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And some guys are just attracted to that. So anyway, she plays that little game. You only hate me. You don't love me. You have posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you have not explained it to me. And he said to her, look, I have not explained it to my father or mother, so should I explain it to you? <laughs> he obviously hadn't been to premarital class. <laughs> you know, so like, he missed that week or something, you know. So it's just like, Uh, So anyway. Now, she had wept on him the seven days while their feast lasted, and it happened on the seventh day that he told her, because she pressed him so much, he finally capitulates. Then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. Doesn't tell her husband, doesn't allow him to take things into his hands, make sure his father-in-law and his wife are protected against these scoundrels. Goes along with these dopey scoundrels. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? (sighs) And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. He knew that they had messed with his wife, and that's how they knew the answer to the riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon, and killed 30 of their men remember the lord's using him in order to throw off the captivity of the philistines against his people the spirit of the lord came upon him mightily and he went down to ashkelon and killed 30 of their men took their apparel gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle so his anger was aroused and he went back up to his father's house and as we'll see as the next chapter begins he didn't take his wife with him. He was ticked. He left, went back to his house. And we do know there were arrangements at that time in history when, amongst the Jewish people when someone would marry um, from a pagan line that she would stay in her father's house and the husband would just go there. He went back to his house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. That's what, his, that's what her father did. Samson left, doesn't know if he's ever going to see him again, takes her, gives him to Samson's best man. Yeah, so their little marriage, his little marriage to this unbelieving woman is off to a great, grand start. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we rejoice in you and give thanks to you for your goodness to us, that we can understand your ways and your thoughts. Lord, we rejoice in you and thank you for your goodness. Lord, I just ask and pray that you use what was said here today for good in each one's life, the parts that I forgot to mention that are needed, fill in the blanks for them, oh God. Father, I just ask and pray that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word that went forth here this day. And I ask and pray that we would live faithful to you in all areas of our life. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise his name. You could be seated. And we're going to take communion at this time.